On January 21st, 1891, Helen Potts closed her book and rubbed her eyes. She was tired and her head still hurt. Everyone else had retired for the evening, and her roommates wouldn't be back for another hour or so. On her way to her room, she stopped and spoke to Miss Reed, the assistant principal of the finishing school. Then she begrudgingly swallowed the last dose of her prescription and went to sleep. What transpired that night and the ensuing trial was the story of the century, as the newspapers called it. In reality, it illustrated the culture of the times. The unconsenting silence of women, the significance of social status, and the importance of one's reputation above nearly all else. I'm Laura. I'm here with my two best friends, Colby and Marina, and this is Grimm. Pots, I I am picturing the little teapot from the Disney movie. <laughs> oh, she I sounds, love it. Yeah, she I sounds like that. a Disney character. I can see that. My yeah. first thought was it's producer Mike's birthday, not the 1800s oh, part, but the yeah. January 21st <laughs> like, part. Well, I thought you meant today. He I was looks like, really good for so, his yeah. age. Yeah. He looks great. Is he a vampire? <laughs> uh, maybe. I can't really disclose that without turning you as well. Um, so we know that I like to copy case attributes from Colby and today what I'm copying is length. So your last episode, you got a two hour roller coaster ride in Carrie Farber's story. And today you're going to get probably around a two hour history lesson. I love it. Yay. (laughs) Buckle up. Um, so credit or blame to the book (laughs) Six Capsules, The Gilded Age Murder of Helen Potts by George R. Deckel Sr., Um, I really recommend reading the whole book. The author is a retired legal skills professor, but before that he worked as an assistant state attorney from 1975 to 2005 in Florida, earning many prestigious awards. So not only is his book extremely well-researched, but it sheds a legal light on what happened in terms I could understand, which I really appreciate. Excellent. So again, the book is Six Capsules, The Gilded Age Murder of Helen Potts. And I got it on Kindle for like $15, so... There's no need for legalese. Mm -hmm. It's just to try to make people feel better and feel smarter. But you should be able to get your point across in simple terms. We could apply that in corporatese, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I once worked for a company that basically said all of your communications had to be understood at a fifth grade level. You Mm -hmm. couldn't write anything that a fifth grader wouldn't. It's now my current corporation that I work for, (laughs) but a different one. Yeah. (laughs) I like that. Well, this, uh, I am definitely writing at a fifth grade level here, so I think you should be able to follow along. It's a really um, interesting story. Is it interesting? Uh, No, it's interesting. Okay. Okay. Are we ever going to revisit what the I in Grimm stands for? Because I think at this point, it it might just be interesting. I think so. I think it's grave retellings of interesting murders and mysteries. Yeah. I think a rebrand. I think so. Done. Fun facts. All those in favor, say aye. 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 Motion passes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that sounded almost exactly like Law and Order. That's what I was going for. Sorry, it's been a very long day for the three of yeah. us at our daytime job. Well, fortunately, we have a nice short case, so you can go to bed soon. I love it. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> All right, well, let's get into it. Carlisle W. Harris was born in Glen Falls, New York, to parents Charles L. Harris and Francis McCready Harris on September 23rd, 1869. Carl was the firstborn. He would have six siblings, only three of whom would join him in adulthood. That was a 
nicer way to put it. (laughs) Yep. His mother, Frances, had been born into luxury. Her father graduated from New York's College of Physicians and Surgeons and had a long, distinguished career. He was one of the founders of the Bellevue Hospital Medical College, where he also was a professor. And he had other business ventures that earned him a large estate by the time he died. But Frances didn't inherit any of that because she had married poorly. Her husband was unable to provide for the family, so although she didn't actually divorce him, which was kind of nearly impossible in the late 1800s, she effectively left him and took care of the family herself by becoming a moderately successful author under a pen name. Good for her. Yeah. Perhaps because of the lack of a father figure, or maybe because he was born with it, Carl was not a good kid. Was he born with it, or was it Maybelline? I'm glad you got that reference. (laughs) Thank you. I was giggling to myself when I wrote that. (laughs) So Carl left school at 13, and he lived a life of sex and lies. Probably not the former at 13, but he didn't. He was doing some bad things. His brother said he was a, quote, polished villain. <laughs> he reminds me a bit of H.H. H. Holmes in that he was evil internally, but he was charismatic and handsome externally. Because of this, he was able to have a variety of jobs to support himself and had no trouble finding women. He finally found his way to medical school, his grandfather's alma mater. His grandfather was so happy he decided to enroll that he paid for his tuition, which answers one of my questions. How did he afford it? But also, how did he manage to get into medical school having not graduated high school? I just wrote hashtag 1800s. I I really don't know. (laughs) I was going to say nepotism. I I think forging documents. I think we've established Mm -hmm. it's far easier to get away with things in the 1800s than it is currently. I think that's why I really like to do cases from the 1800s because things were just bonkers and it just makes it so much more fun. (laughs) All right. Anyway, so Carl did well with his classes and his classmates. He was pretty popular, but people did dislike how much he bragged about his sexual conquests. While he was in school, his mother rented a house in Ocean Grove, New Jersey. She gave a series of lectures on the topics of her books and George H. Potts and his wife Cynthia attended. Mrs. Potts became friends with Mrs. Harris, and that is how Carl met Cynthia's daughter, Helen. Now I'm getting real Beauty and the Beast vibes because <laughs> right? she said Mrs. Potts. <laughs> oh, and you know what's funny is that's how I'll refer to her through the rest of, well, her mother. Awesome. To the rest of, through the rest of this. She's we, officially a teapot. Yep. Yes. Do we okay. have a Lumiere joining us as well? I really think you could apply almost every character of Beauty and the Beast to this story, and I would like everyone to tell us who's who at the end of this. Okay. 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 I think you could. And it's certainly how I picture people with, like, monocles and mustaches and (laughs) Mm -hmm. stuff. Okay. Carl later claimed that Helen was the most beautiful girl he had ever seen. And after being formally introduced at a local dance, he began to court her, as Mm. one does in the 1800s. After that summer, Carl went back to school, and Helen's family got a place in New York as well, since she and her brother were attending schools in the city. Carl found this to be quite the opportunity and frequently visited. He eventually asked if he could have Helen's hand in marriage, to which Mrs. Potts gave a resounding no. (laughs) Her reasoning was that she thought they were too young, which I was surprised because Carl was 20 at the time, and I thought people married young back then. Yeah, I thought so too. Um, I'm not sure how old Helen was at the time. Um, I think she might have been around 15 or 16, which is, I guess, a little bit young. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's really little written about Helen's childhood. I just know that her family was moderately high social standing and her father worked on the railroads and her mother's a teapot. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for clarifying that. When he asked for her hand in marriage and Mrs. Potts said no, did he tip her over and pour her out? Uh, no, no, but, um, I don't know how to respond to that other than than just, no, no, he didn't do that. Okay. 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 
However, showcasing some of his character, instead of accepting the answer, Carl went to a lawyer friend of his and asked whether he could secretly marry Helen. Naturally, the friend said, yeah, it's legal, but don't do that, please. Um, I'm also curious about Helen's feelings on the matter because Carl's brother, McCready, was also courting Helen. So I'm not sure that she was head over heels in love with Carl, but you can argue that Carl won. Uh, On February 7th, 1890, McCready invited Helen out the next day to see the stock exchange where he worked and Helen had accepted But Carl, who had witnessed this discussion, he was at the house as well, he stayed back at the Potts household after McCready left and asked Mrs. Potts if he could escort Helen to the city to meet McCready the next day. Mrs. Potts agreed, and Carl picked Helen up early the next morning, and you may see where this is going, not long after McCready showed up to pick up Helen. Yep. Now, I don't know what charismatic web Carl was spinning to swoon Helen this effectively, but instead of going to the stock exchange, the two got married under fake names Charles Harris and Helen Nielsen on February 8th, 1890. Carl kept the marriage certificate, and upon returning, they just told Mrs. Potts that they had just walked around and gotten lunch. Nothing of any significance whatsoever (laughs) happened today. I did have the chicken salad. It was quite good. It was excellent. And Carl was the one that was 20, and she was 15, Mm -hmm. and Mrs. Potts said no. Correct. Yes. So after leaving the Potts house, Carl promptly burnt the marriage certificate, and you may be asking yourself, why bother going through the marriage under false names that only he and Helen knew of and then destroy the only evidence? Simple. He didn't really care to marry Helen for any noble reasons. It was just that Helen had refused to have sex with him until they were married. I was wondering if mm-hmm. it was something like that. Yep. So not long after their secret marriage, Carl got Helen pregnant and then convinced her to get an abortion. And then he got her pregnant again. And again, he convinced her to get an abortion. Carl. <laughs> get the hot dogs Carl <laughs> I yeah mm-hmm. it's fucked up yeah <laughs> it is so however for Carl he was temporarily satisfied he he turned his attention elsewhere he visited the Potts household less and less because of course Helen was still living there no one knew it about their marriage and that summer he ended up opening a business in Asbury Park shout out Springsteen Uh, In the three-story building he'd purchased with money borrowed from his grandfather, he opened a restaurant and a candy store on the ground floor, and then the Neptune Club occupied the top two floors. It sounds cool, the Neptune Club. It does. The stairs, which were roped off with a sign saying members only, sounds good to me, would lead you to a lounge where you could gamble and drink, also sounds good to me. However, this was hugely frowned upon uh, at this time, and one could be charged with keeping a disorderly house and arrested if, if it was found out. So as such, Carl ran the restaurant and candy store using his real identity, but the Neptune Club under the name Charles W. Harkness. So we have yet another name. Kind of just like H.H. Holmes, actually. But instead of a murder castle, it's like a salacious castle. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Sounds a lot more fun. Yeah, this is a castle I would visit. The murder castle, not so much. No, I'm also with that. So evidently, Carl was still visiting Helen enough during this time to get her pregnant for a third time. But this time, she refused an abortion. Now, Carl did not want another child, and I think that's just in general, but also because he was now engaged to another woman. Oh, Carl, you doing Helen Mm, dirty here. mm -hmm. Did Helen know that? No, no. Helen tried her best to stand her ground, but eventually agreed to an abortion if Carl would admit to just someone else as a witness that they were married. I'm so sad for her that that was the thing that she wanted. She just wanted him to admit that they were together, officially. I know. To anyone. Yeah. It didn't matter who, right? Exactly. So actually, in August of that year, so 1890 still, 
Helen invited her friend May Schofield to stay with her in Ocean Grove, New Jersey for a few days. Once May was settled, she and Helen agreed to go for a walk on the beach. Helen invited Carl to join them, and then after a brief hushed argument with Carl, Helen said that she actually needed to stay back and take care of something, and that Carl and May should go on the walk by themselves. On this walk, Carl reluctantly told May of his and Helen's marriage. May was appalled and said they needed to tell Mrs. Potts, but Carl flipped out and said she couldn't, that he would rather kill Helen and himself than have the marriage public. That escalated very quickly. A little extreme. And then he proceeded to say, I wish that she were dead and I were out of it. And obviously May scolded him for saying something like that about Helen and the two returned to the house. I picture her saying it in a very old timey way. Like, hush your mouth, you cotton-headed ninny muggins. <laughs> Don't talk like that. Is that how she sounded a little Irish? Yes. Okay, perfect. Yes. So May confirmed to Helen that Carl had told her about the marriage. And later that afternoon, with Helen's demands met, Carl took her for a walk on the beach, where you will not believe this, he chose to perform the abortion himself on the beach. On the beach? Uh, yes. I... I, that doesn't sound sanitary. Uh, no, no, no. And so much sand. Well, that was <laughs> so exactly much. my first thought. Uh, now, Carl was a medical student, so he had some knowledge, but he was most definitely not qualified to do this. And Helen bled so much that he thought she was going to die. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Somehow he eventually stopped the bleeding and managed to get her back to the house. And she attributed her appearance to a headache. And Mrs. Potts told her she shouldn't have taken such a long walk because they'd been gone like three hours. So oh, the 1800s. Ex- I literally almost every paragraph is like, hashtag 1800s. Yep. So Helen went to bed and Carl left for the Neptune Club, thinking he'd just solved all his problems. But Helen was not recovering. So Mrs. Potts sent her to her brother-in-law, a doctor in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Now, I just have to pause to think about how miserable and insane this time must have been. Can you imagine having to take what I assume was likely a train ride? to another state while you're trying to survive from a botched abortion conducted by on the beach by your unqualified secret husband. Just cannot imagine. I think that was a plot on days of our lives. (laughs) It sounds like it. It does. Oh, it's just, I can't, I can't even take a car ride if I don't feel well. Helen spent a week at Dr. Treverton's, which again, is the uh, doctor in Scranton, Pennsylvania, because she refused to allow him to do a physical exam. She finally allowed him to examine her because she was continuing to worsen, and he realized that she was actually pregnant. Oh, Oh, no. mm -hmm. Helen told him about her secret marriage and that this was actually her third abortion. So one of the previous ones was done by a doctor she didn't know. The other one was also performed by her husband. Oh, my gosh. Poor Helen at this point Mm -hmm. in time. And to think you had to keep it hidden from a doctor. Right, right. You know, couldn't tell him and... So Dr. Treverton did not want to finish what Carl had started. He would not give Helen a proper abortion, but he would treat her. He then sent a letter to Carl basically saying that if Carl didn't pay him for the expenses of Helen's treatment, he'd notify Helen's family of their indiscretion. Oh, My favorite part of his letter is that under his signature, he wrote, I mean business, <laughs> which just made me laugh. I think my dad said that a few times. Yeah. <laughs> So Carl did agree to come out to Scranton and was met by Dr. Treverton's nephew, Charles Oliver. While Dr. Treverton was tending to Helen, Charles and Carl went sightseeing, of course. In casual conversation, Carl told a shocked Charles that he had performed many abortions on women since they'd pay a high fee for a discreet medical student's help. He also told Charles that he was a pro with women and that he'd successfully conquered nearly everyone he wanted to, just with a little help. Gross. 
the help mm. was secretly adding alcohol to ginger ale. He said it was really easy to disguise and then taking advantage of them once they were drunk or passed out. Carl's a douche. He's yeah. a terrible person. There were only two cases where that didn't work, and that was Helen and the other woman that he had secretly married for the same reason. And that second woman actually birthed their son, but wanted nothing to do with Carl. So I can't blame her on that one. Good for Helen for getting drunk and keeping her morals. Yeah. Good for her. While Dr. Treverton had not agreed to perform an abortion on Helen, sadly, he didn't need to. Carl had done enough damage. Later that evening, while Charles and Carl talked, Helen delivered a stillborn baby. Dr. Traverton noted that the baby had evidence of trauma to its head and looked as though it had been dead for at least two weeks. Oh. Poor Helen, poor baby. Awful. Yeah. So Helen remained in Scranton to recover, and her mother joined her to take care of her. It's not clear if it was Dr. Traverton or Helen herself, but soon after arriving, Mrs. Potts became aware of the situation, including Helen's marriage to Carl. Now, Mrs. Potts was deciding how to approach things because she wanted to punish Carl for what he did to her daughter, but she also wanted to protect Helen from scandal. Yeah. So Carl at this time had returned to New York and he and Mrs. Potts began a correspondence on the matter. But then Carl was arrested only a couple of weeks later for that keeping a disorderly house in the form of that Neptune club. This added embarrassment caused Mrs. Potts to decide to bury it all. She didn't even want her husband to know that her daughter had been defiled and then secretly married to such a man. She didn't blow her lid. (laughs) (laughs) She whistled. Yeah. (laughs) She hoped that the Neptune Club arrests would blow over and in the future, Carl could marry Helen in a proper ceremony. Now, if I put myself in the times, I can initially see where Mrs. Potts was coming from on keeping the situation quiet, but I can't understand why she thought that it was worth Helen marrying Carl at all. It's not like they had a child they needed to raise that I could get. The only thing I can think of is that um, she thought having a proper ceremony would like retroactively fix the sins. I don't know. I I think it goes to the virtue. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Now, although Carl had been arrested, he did not have to stay in jail to wait for his court date, which he was successfully delaying. (laughs) By this time, Helen had recovered enough for her and Mrs. Potts to return to New York, so they met with Carl to discuss how to handle things. Carl told Mrs. Potts that he had no idea anything questionable was happening in the Neptune Club. Nope. So she really shouldn't think any, any less of him for that. Mrs. Potts pushed the idea of the proper ceremony, and Carl said, of course he would. They just needed to get past the little trouble with the Neptune Club first, otherwise Helen might inadvertently become involved. And we wouldn't want that. No, so Mrs. Potts agreed. To this point, we've talked a lot about other people's actions as they relate to Helen, but not really Helen's actions or feelings on the matter. And from what I can gather, that was just the reality at the time as well. It seems like Helen was almost a passenger on this ride driven by Carl and Mrs. Potts. It does seem like she wanted to be with Carl. She was happy when her mother approved of the marriage. So to that end, in December of that year, so we're still in 1890, Carl and Mrs. Potts decided to enroll Helen in the Comstock School in New York, which is a finishing school for girls. There is mention that Helen was a bit older than the other girls who would have been in their early teens. So that's why I think she was in her late teens. But I'm, we never know her, um, her age. While Helen was acclimating to the school, Mrs. Potts and Carl continued their correspondence, nearly always on the topic of when Carl would marry Helen. In a letter to Mrs. Potts around January 19th, he finally promised that he would marry her publicly on February 8th, 1891, which was ironically a year to the date of their secret marriage. So maybe he was a romantic. Maybe. That is romantic. I'm not sure if Helen was even made aware of this, but it soon wouldn't matter. Oh, no. Mm. 
On January 20th, only a few days after writing and sending the letter to Mrs. Potts announcing his intent to marry Helen the next month, Carl arrived at McIntyre and Sons Pharmacy. He requested 24 capsules of oil of sandalwood. Um, Sandalwood is produced from the sandalwood tree, as you could imagine, and it's an essential oil that's been used to remedy all sorts of ailments like common cold, bronchitis, fever, that sort of thing. Smells lovely as well. Oh, I didn't know that. I just like eucalyptus and sandalwood okay. candles or that's fair sandalwood okay. is a good scent in perfumes it maybe would help you with if you, if you had bronchitis yeah maybe you should lick a candle next time you have an ailment <laughs> so the pharmacist said it would take a while to make that many capsules maybe carl could come back later persistent carl asked for six to be prepared immediately and he'd come back the next day to get the rest did he have to go milk the tree <laughs> Is it an almond tree? For some reason, that's what I imagine. <laughs> Once that was all sorted, Carl gave him a second prescription. Written by Carl himself, the script called for 25 grains of quinine and one grain of morphine to be equally mixed and then divided into six capsules. Now, I think most people are familiar with what morphine is, but I hadn't heard of quinine. Quinine is a medication used to treat malaria. Grim fact treatment of malaria with quinine began in at least 1632, making it the first known use of a chemical compound to treat an infectious disease. You did not listen, learn, and stay alive because quinine is what is in tonic as well. And that's what was in Phoebe Hanschuk's system. Okay. I am still alive, but I didn't, <laughs> I didn't listen or learn. Well, I listened. I didn't learn. So I got two out of three. So yeah, it's a D. I didn't learn either, um, but I am with Laura. I have managed to stay alive since that episode. <laughs> As an aside, I do think that's what's in tonic because I said she had been out drinking mm-hmm. and they were like, oh, she had a bunch of quinine in her system. I and do, like, it can be used yeah. for muscle cramps or malaria. And I was like, or she drank a bunch of vodka tonics at the bar. Yep. Now that you say that, I had heard the word yes. quinine before. It also glows in a black light. Wow. Oh, so many grim facts. That's the grimmest fact. They definitely had many black lights in 1891. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. I think they use, if you put the, if you put purple and blue Sharpie over their iPhone flashlights, that's probably what they used oh, instead probably, of black yeah. lights. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In their wagons. <laughs> yeah. Yes. They're station wagons, right? Yeah. <laughs> So malaria was a leading cause of death in the late 1800s, which I also didn't realize it just, they said it so nonchalantly in this, like, oh, you may have some malaria. Just a tiny case of malaria. (laughs) But that's how they used it. So anyway, as for the dosage, I didn't know what a grain was either. And I told you guys, you're going on a history lesson. So this is more than you ever needed to know about ancient pharmaceutical things, but per use. Yep. So a grain is an old unit of measure, of course, used primarily by pharmacists, but it's a rather inconsistent method of measurement, which is why we don't use it today. One grain equals 64.8 milligrams, but it's usually rounded off to 65, but then they would half it. So it would be either 32.4 or 32.5. But then if they wanted to have it be a full grain again, instead of saying, oh yeah, that's 64.8, they just double the other one. So you could end up with... 64 milligrams or 68 and then if you now had five grains in a bottle of aspirin it was anywhere from 320 milligrams to 340 so that's not good in uh, pharmaceuticals no no now morphine was readily available at your local pharmacy often with no prescription even required it was the preferred treatment for the horrific injuries sustained by soldiers in the civil war and many of them had come home addicted mm-hmm. So although an order of morphine was common, it was still an opioid. And as such, it was a common practice for a pharmacist to have a colleague present when they to oversee as they prepared it. I'm still stuck on the fact that they're filling a prescription 
for Carl. Yes. Written by Carl. Right. Yes. Uh, you picked that up and he even signed it dash student <laughs> and they still filled it. Now, I think he was a, a regular at the store and again, morphine was common. It's not like if I went to try to go get right. morphine, it's a dash Laura. Um, but yeah, I agree. Now, this was the case uh, that the pharmacist in McIntyre and Sons had a colleague overseeing him, and soon the pharmacist handed Carl those six capsules, as well as six of the sandalwood in two labeled containers. Carl would never return for the remaining capsules of the sandalwood. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> the next day, on January 21st, Carl visited Helen at the Comstock School. She had been complaining of headaches, and Carl had just the thing. He gave her four of the capsules containing the quinine and morphine mixture. After leaving Helen with the direction that one capsule should be taken at night, Carl left for a vacation to slightly warmer weather. He stayed in Old Point Comfort in Hampton, Virginia, which is just northwest of what's now Virginia Beach. For reasons only known to her, Helen disregarded Carl's instructions. The next morning, she took two of the capsules. Oh, Helen. This made her feel nauseous, and she wrote Carl saying as much. He told her to follow the prescription. She would experience less nausea if she took one capsule and ensured she did so before bed. How did she write Carl that quickly? I had the same question when okay. I was thinking through this. I Carrier think it mu- pigeon? I think it must have been a text message. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I thought the same thing. The Carrier. Pony Express, guys. I will say that the next segment of this, we're talking about 10 days later. So it might have been like, I think she wrote the next day and he, she probably got a response a couple days later. Okay. That's what I think. But I did think the same thing. It sounded very expeditious in your retelling. So I, that's fair. I was also thinking when you were, when you were talking about Helen and Carl starting correspondence, mm-hmm. how could people stand it? We <laughs> all text each other and expect an instantaneous yes. response. I can't imagine trying to have a conversation with three days in between nope. each thing that you say. No, yeah. I'll set with that. I nope. would I'd quit that correspondence very quickly. It'd be yep. like I've lost interest in this conversation. <laughs> I Thank think their you. attention spans were a little better than ours. Mm, probably. Probably because yeah. they didn't have electronics. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, so so Carl had written back and said if she just took one capsule and ensured she did so before bed, she wouldn't feel nauseous. And in fact, she should be sure to take the pill and then not be wakened or the medicine wouldn't work. On January 31st, Mrs. Potts visited Helen at her school. Helen told her mother about the pills Carl had given her and that she wasn't interested in taking any more because of how they made her feel. She had only taken one more pill since her last correspondence with Carl a couple weeks earlier, as evidenced by the weight and sound of the pill box when she handed it to her mother for inspection. Mrs. Potts told her that it was normal for quinine to have such an effect and encouraged her to take the remaining capsule that night. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. After some more motherly reassurance, Mrs. Potts bid goodbye to her daughter and her daughter's roommates and headed home. She left around three o'clock, completely unaware that that would be the last time she saw her daughter alive. Oh, it's heartbreaking. That evening, most of the girls at the Comstock school were attending a concert by the New York Symphony. Helen had stayed back, still complaining of that headache. She spent her evening with Miss Lydia Day, the principal of the school. I get Miss Honey vibes from that for some reason. Miss Lydia Day. Yeah. The two of them relaxed in the third floor sitting room, reading. Miss Day went to bed around 10. Helen, tired and still dealing with her headache, followed suit soon after. On her way to her room, she saw Miss Reed, the associate principal, and told her, My young doctor friend has given me a prescription to cure my malaria. He says that I must take it just before bed and that I must not be awakened. If I wake up, he says the medicine won't do any good. I wish you would warn my roommates not to wake me tonight when they come home from the concert. 
I don't like that. I don't either. Helen's roommates came home at 1030. Mrs. Reed didn't give them the message, so they weren't quiet and they woke Helen. Miss Reed came in at 11 to turn the lights off, and shortly after, Helen began to moan. Her roommates tried to comfort her. She complained of numbness, then began having difficulty breathing and complained of a choking sensation. She said she felt as if she were going to die. They tried to calm her down and get her to go to sleep, not knowing any better, and Helen said, if I go to sleep, it will be a death sleep. She said, Carl said I could take one of these pills every night for 12 nights in succession, and he had taken them himself. How could... Carl would not give me anything that would hurt me, would he? After 45 minutes, Helen was getting worse, so the girls got Miss Day. When Miss Day arrived, Helen was unconscious. Her roommate said she looked like death. She was very pale, and the veins all stuck out on her forehead and were blue. Even her hands were blue. Ooh, I don't like that at all. It's not a good sign. No. So Miss Day felt the same and immediately sent for Dr. Edward Fowler. He lived just three doors down, and he was a very competent doctor, having written several medical books and was the founder of a medical college. When Dr. Fowler arrived, he found Helen in a state of profound coma with cold, pale blue skin and labored breathing. Her pupils were both contracted to a point almost beyond perceptible. Immediately, he recognized the symptoms as indicating an overdose of an opiate, likely morphine, and again, this was common at the time, so he had seen it many times. Dr. Fowler then attempted many different tactics to try to save Helen, but this was the 1890s, and let me tell you, this was a wild time. So the first thing that that Dr. Fowler did was ask for black coffee, which he then used to give Helen a coffee enema. Oh, okay. And the hope there was that the caffeine would stimulate her out of her coma. It's a very fast way to absorb the caffeine into your body. Mm Mm-hmm. He also began artificial respiration, which is nothing like you'd see today. Grim fact, mouth-to-mouth wasn't invented until 1956, which is way later than I expected. Uh So in 1890, they did it by pulling the person's arms above their head and then pulling them down really fast, like a big accordion. (laughs) (laughs) I can't imagine that was very very effective. effective. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yep. So then the doctor asked Miss Day to look for any medication in Helen's room, and Miss Day found an empty pillbox with the inscription 12091-Quin-Sulf-Morph-Sulf-Sig-1 before retiring, signed CWH student. Miss Day recognized the initials CWH as Carl W. Harris. Dr. Fowler sent for Carl to learn what was in the pills. Dr. Fowler also called for a colleague, Dr. William Boehner, to join him, and when Dr. Boehner arrived at 1 a.m., he concurred with Dr. Fowler's diagnosis of opium poisoning. The two continued their archaic methods to try to revive Helen, who at this point looked and sounded dead. She was only taking one breath every two minutes, which I I can't even imagine how you were alive with that little breathing. In addition to the coffee enemas and the ineffective artificial respiration, they also gave her atropine, which is a drug used to treat low heart rate, and digitalis, a medicine used to treat heart rhythm problems, as well as oxygen through a mask. But they also tried whiskey, obviously, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, and then they shocked her with a battery. Oh. It sounds crazy, but I was thinking about it. It's probably like a a defibrillator. I, you know, this... Carl Fowler, Kyle. correspondence, Charles. This is just not Say a bark story. Box. <laughs> back, 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 <laughs> back, back, back. <laughs> That's the hardest <gasps> phrase for me to say. Bark box. I'm right. the Massachusetts. It's back, box. <laughs> <laughs> bark, bark. <laughs> 
By 3 a.m., Helen was breathing a little more frequently. Carl Harris finally arrived around 6 a.m., and Dr. Fowler asked another doctor to join them, Dr. Kerr, who arrived at 7.30. When Dr. Fowler asked Carl to tell him what was in the pills, he said, I gave them for malaria, for headache, and insomnia, and the like. I thought it should be best for a thing like that. And then he told him the same prescription that he had uh, told the pharmacist. Dr. Fowler was dubious. A sixth grain of morphine or even a full grain wouldn't have been enough to cause Helen's symptoms. So he told Carl to go to the pharmacist and confirm what had been put in the capsules because he thought they had reversed the amounts that they had done 25 grains of morphine and one grain of quinine because that was all he could imagine would have caused Helen's symptoms. So Carl went out and came back and confirmed that the prescription was filled correctly. So then Dr. Fowler questioned why Carl had written a prescription, seeing as he was a student, but he lost track of the conversation as he had to attend to to Helen. Carl kept asking, do you think that I could be held responsible for this accident? And Dr. Fowler said he had no idea. He just wanted to try to save Helen. Yeah. Like, that's not what you should care about right now, Carl. Let's focus on Helen Mm -hmm. instead right now. Mm. Uh, Carl would have disagreed because he asked the same question eight or nine times that morning. Oh, man. By 10 a.m., Helen seemed better. She was now taking more frequent breaths, but soon after she worsened, and just 45 minutes later, Dr. Fowler pronounced her dead. Mm. Mrs. Potts had been notified of Helen's illness earlier that morning, but couldn't get into New York until that afternoon, and it was too late. Carl met her at the train station to escort her to the school. Fearful, Mrs. Potts asked how sick Helen was. Carl had to tell her that they had not been able to save Helen. Not knowing Helen's symptoms and having just seen her the day before when she just had the headache, Mrs. Potts asked if Carl had attempted another abortion. Mm. He vehemently denied this and said she had died of morphine poisoning and that it was the pharmacist's mistake. He's like, it was an accident. Everyone heard me say that it was an accident. And I was here trying to save her Mm -hmm. from this accident. Mm -hmm. It was Mm -hmm. an accident. Definitely an accident. Yep. Upon returning to the school, Dr. Fowler told Carl to go back to the pharmacy and copy the written prescription. Carl waited until the next day and then calmly asked the pharmacist to look it up and then wrote down what he told him, which was the prescription. He then thanked him and then left without mentioning that it was because Helen died. Right. Carl made another stop that day. He visited Dr. George Peabody, a professor whose lecture Carl had recently attended. The lecture had been on the effects of morphine on a person. And the Dr. Peabody had even passed around a jar of morphine capsules for students to observe. Okay. That is the Google search of the 1800s. Yes. yes. Yep. They're yep. like, oh, she died of morphine poisoning and you attended a lecture? Yes, exactly. Weeks before? Exactly. It's your search history. Yes, yes. it is. Yes. So Carl told Dr. Peabody what he had prescribed to Helen and why and then asked his opinion. Could Carl be held accountable for her death? I'm <laughs> was so an glad. It was an accident. So Dr. Peabody thought it was unnecessary to prescribe it all and that Carl certainly shouldn't have written the prescription as a student. Carl, who was nearly graduating from medical school and had just been appointed to house surgeon at a nearby hospital, was worried that Dr. Peabody would share his disapproval and concerns with the college and possibly put his graduation and job in jeopardy. Did Dr. Peabody die? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, <laughs> surprisingly. Surprisingly. During this time, Carl had continued talking with Mrs. Potts. It seemed that even in death, Helen couldn't escape from being the puppet for her husband and mother. Though Mrs. Potts was distraught at her daughter's death, she was almost more concerned with the potential scandal. In one conversation with Carl, she basically accused him of murder, and he reiterated his innocence, but she poked at the facts. If he was innocent, how did Helen die? 
Carl again said it was the pharmacist's mistake. And moreover, analysis of the capsules he had held back. Remember, he had only given her four, so he had two with him. That would prove that he didn't give her too much morphine. But Mrs. Potts was smarter than he was, and she knew that these were conflicting statements. If Carl hadn't poisoned her, but she had died of morphine poisoning, then it must be the pharmacist's mistake. But if he's claiming it's not, and again, she died of morphine poisoning, yep. then he must have done it. So she knew this and had figured this out. But instead of advocating for justice for her daughter's murder, Mrs. Potts chose to preserve Helen's character, at least in her eyes. She even conferred with Carl's mother, who feared that Carl would be found responsible as well. And Mrs. Potts went so far as to send $50 to Mrs. Harris and told her to have Carl go on the run. Okay, wait. So Carl kills her daughter. Yeah. And then in exchange, she pays off Carl's mother to keep the whole situation. Correct. Hush. Again, because that's way more important than advocating for your daughter. Mm-hmm. I hate the 1800s. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> So the way that suspicious deaths were investigated in the 1890s was very different than today. Three parties were supposed to be notified, the police, who usually were first on scene anyway, the coroner, and the district attorney. The coroner would investigate the death and then present results to a coroner's jury, who would come to a consensus on how the person died. However, the police usually notified the DA first because neither group tended to think the coroner actually knew how to investigate a homicide. And this caused so much rivalry between the three groups that sometimes they'd race to get to the scene first. Now, this was not the case with Helen. Dr. Fowler was on the side of his fellow medical professionals, so he only notified the coroner who chose not to notify the police or the (laughs) DA. Deputy Coroner Albert Weston arrived at 2 p.m. to examine Helen's body after talking with Dr. Fowler. Mr. Weston talked with the witnesses, Miss Day, Dr. Boehner, Dr. Kerr. Both doctors repeated their diagnosis of morphine poisoning. They also asked Carl, since he was a medical student, they asked him for his opinion, and he said the same. Naturally. Yep. So he's gone from saying it was a pharmacist's mistake to now he agrees, yep, it's it's morphine poisoning. And he said, I concur. Indubitably. <laughs> yes, indubitably. He definitely did. Mm-hmm. He looks like that, too. You'll You'll see the pictures. Yep. So Mr. Weston now felt he knew the cause of death, but he wanted to learn about the manner of death. So why and how had she been poisoned? He considered accident, suicide, or homicide. It was unlikely that it was suicide, given the witness's statements. Um, Even though Carl had validated the prescription, it still could have been a mistake by the pharmacist. Uh, Carl said he had found one of the capsules he withheld and gave it to Mr. Weston and said that he couldn't find the other, but that Mr. Weston could have that one analyzed. Now to rule out homicide. He asked Carl for more information about the capsules, and Carl said Helen told him she had headaches, so he thought to prescribe the quinine and morphine. He again told him about the six capsules, that it was, you know, the 25 grains of quinine and one of morphine, blah, blah, blah. Now, he's told him that he had only given Helen four and kept the other two, and he said this was because he was worried about having so much morphine available at a girl's school. They're just going to go wild with that morphine in those dorms. (laughs) Exactly. So, of course, Mr. Weston had the same question as to why Carl thought he could write a prescription as a student. Carl said his professor said he could, which is not true. (laughs) I had permission. Yep. (laughs) Mr. Weston continued to push at the poisoning, asking about how Mrs. Potts felt about Carl prescribing medicine to her daughter when he was just a student. And she said, oh, she fully trusted him. Again, trying to cover things up. Mr. Weston also questioned Mrs. Potts about Helen's medical history. Before Mrs. Potts could answer, Carl jumped in to say that Helen had suffered for years from heart disease. What? That's not true. But Mrs. Potts went along with it because she didn't want an autopsy. 
So much virtue at stake. Yes, because the reason she didn't want an autopsy is she was afraid that it would reveal that Helen had had an abortion. Wow. Or three. Or three, yes. Mr. Weston shared his concerns that Helen may have been poisoned, but Mrs. Potts stood firm that it must have been from heart disease. Mr. Weston tried one more time to convince Mrs. Potts they should do an autopsy, but she was steadfast. Now, if this had happened today, at least in the United States, authorities can order an autopsy if there was suspicion of foul play. But in 1891, social standing held a lot more weight, and that's a theme you'll see throughout this, and Mr. Weston was not comfortable authorizing the autopsy against Mrs. Potts' wishes, given how socially prominent she and her family were. So Mr. Weston had no choice but to release Helen's body to the undertaker, and they prepared for the funeral. Now, poor George Potts, Helen's father, he had been largely absent from his daughter's recent trials and tribulations due to his traveling for work, but he was a broken man. At Helen's funeral on February 4th, Mr. Potts swore he saw Helen move and that he believed she would recover. That was literally not possible. She had already been embalmed. He stood in denial for three days until he finally allowed her to be buried. Oh my gosh. Mr. Weston also turned over his findings to Louis Schultz, the elected coroner. Where Mr. Weston did a thorough, valiant job trying to investigate Helen's death, Mr. Schultz did not. As soon as he had the pillbox in his hands, he lost it. Oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Nope. Just as soon as he got it. Classic. Yep. And then he was eventually successful in having the capsule analyzed, but he had to go back and make multiple requests and had a lot of trouble with that because he didn't provide enough evidence for a judge to feel that the cost of the analysis was warranted. I'm surprised they had those systems in place in 1891. There are so many procedures in this. They're just so different than what they are today. Um, The results were disappointing, though. The capsules were mixed exactly as the prescription was written. Hmm. What is going on? Tis a mystery. Hmm. It is. So Mr. Schultz presented the case to the coroner's jury, and the jury was made up of six pharmacists and six physicians. Is the coroner's jury made up uh, based on the specifics of the case, or is it always six pharmacists and six medical professionals? I think it is based on the case, because it sounded like it was not always those that mixture that's yep. interesting mm-hmm. i like is, that is it interesting Maria? it is very interesting especially for 1891 I good know. for them i know there's a lot of this and that's why this is so many pages because i was just fascinated with how differently they did things and it was very interesting to me now remember dr peabody the the professor who did the lecture on the morphine He was not on the panel, but Mrs. Potts, in a continued attempt to cover up the possibility of murder, actually wrote to him to ask him to influence the coroner's jury to have them return a verdict that Helen had died of heart disease. Now, Dr. Peabody flat out refused and said that he believed Helen had been murdered. I'm not loving Mrs. Potts right now, if I can be honest with you That's what I'm saying. Exactly. Now, the coroner's jury did return the verdict that Helen had died as a result of opium poisoning, but that there was not enough morphine in her possession to have caused her death. That's all the detail we have about that trial, uh, because Mr. Schultz lost the transcript of that coroner's story. <laughs> oh, is that is that the same guy that lost the it pill is, box? It is. Yeah, and it should have been given to the DA for the case yes. and all that. Nope, lost was it. Was he in on it, or was no. he that? No, clumsy? he was that clumsy. And, okay, yep. they gotta yep. stop trusting him with important information. Clumsy Schultzy. <laughs> I don't even know if clumsy is the right word. Just. Scatterbrained, yeah. yeah, careless, scatterbrained, yeah. Schultzy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't give it don't, to him, Dolcey, Schultzy, <laughs> don't be like Schultzy, guys. Yeah, <laughs> Laura's like, so then they found this other insane piece of evidence, and they gave it back to Schultz, <laughs> and it disappeared. No, but they, so basically, since the coroner's office had so greatly mishandled their part of the investigation, 
and also they didn't notify the police or the DA, the police were not interested in helping with this investigation. Yeah. They're like, all's well that ends well. Yeah, they basically Bye. like, this is a lost cause. Everything's mm-hmm. lost, literally. <laughs> <laughs> but technically, the DA's office could have investigated themselves. They just didn't. It's They didn't have the experience or resources. It's not really their role. So the ADA chose not to prosecute and they closed the case. But that's, of course, you know, I have many more pages than that. That's not the end of the story. (laughs) So Dr. Peabody had refused to agree with Mrs. Potts, but that wasn't all. So not only did he believe that Helen had been murdered, but he was confident that Carl's actions caused it. He felt strongly that this made Carl morally unfit to be a doctor. And he wrote to the president of Carl's College sharing his concerns. In turn, the college president asked Mrs. Potts to share her opinion on Carl's involvement, which is another 1800s thing. Why would that be? You go ask the mother (laughs) about like, well, what do you think? Um, He even managed to get a statement from Dr. Treverton, which again was the doctor who took care of Helen after Carl's almost killing her. We know that Dr. Treverton's thoughts were likely scathing because he didn't think very highly of Carl. But surprisingly, given her desire to cover up the murder, Mrs. Potts implicated Carl. And I really just think it's because she didn't realize where it was going to go. I think she was still angry with Carl. She thought it would just get him expelled from school. Didn't realize what the implications would be. Okay, that's not an 1800s thing. Like, you're (laughs) making inconsistent statements. Right. Yes. Like, you have to pick a position and stick with it. It's all different people, I think, is what she thought. Mm, great but that's not how it works well you're correct because not only did the college president use these statements to attempt to expel carl he also shared them with the da Mm -hmm. good yeah makes sense yep and worse and i'll explain why it's worse in a second copies of these statements were leaked to a reporter this was quite the scandalous story in 1891 even without the knowledge of the secret marriage and multiple abortions reporters and readers alike loved the juicy details of a socialite entangled with a handsome medical student who then died under suspicious circumstances. So it was a big story. And this was like Newsies time, right? Like there were paper boys slinging these on the corner. Oh yeah. Yep. So the reporter immediately went to interview Carl, bringing the statements with him. Now, Carl did not follow our grim rule to keep your mouth shut. Mm. And that applies to reporters, police, just be quiet. He acknowledged that he did prescribe the quinine and morphine tablets, but as he had told Dr. Fowler the night Helen died, he had only given her four and held back two. Mrs. Potts referenced this in her statement and noting the same rationale I shared before, why would Carl provide the capsules that were mixed correctly when Helen did indeed die of morphine poisoning? In response, Carl conceded that he could have easily just blamed the pharmacist. And when the reporter asks, well, then what would Carl say is the cause of death, if not from accidental overdose in the capsules? Carl said, I believe poor Helen took several of the capsules instead of one the night previous to her death. The amount of opium they contained is unlikely to cause death ordinarily, but in certain circumstances it might and may have done so in this instance. So he was referring to the fabricated fact that Helen had an underlying heart condition, Mm. which is actually pretty clever, if you ask me. He then had to address the allegations of the secret marriage. He said everyone, including Mrs. Potts, was aware of it, and they had just used the fake names because they were waiting until they both graduated school to have a real marriage. Finally, he had to deal with Dr. Treverton's statements, which accused Carl of the attempted abortion. Carl's approach for this was to let the reporter copy the letter that Dr. Treverton had sent Carl demanding the money. 
And then he denied having performed any operations himself and accused Dr. Trevorton of giving Helen an abortion without Carl's consent and then blackmailing him. Oh, well, dastardly I mean, deeds. It's like not saying, a bad strategy. Right? It's pretty clever. He still should have just kept his mouth shut. But Yes, yes. And I'd said earlier that it was actually worse that the statements went to the newspaper than the DA. Because surprisingly, Carl's response to the reporters' questions weren't really the issue. The problem was he took these questions as cause to go clear his name with the DA. So that same day, he walked right into the DA's office and told them if they had any real concerns with what the paper was saying, that he would happily explain it away and assist in an investigation. After Carl left, the DA immediately ordered that the case be reopened and reinvestigated. He was super smart and Carl's words and behavior stunk of guilt. Carl's like, I am nailing this. Yes. And the DA's like, get him. Like, Nail him to <laughs> the wall. Yep. And the best part was nothing had even been printed yet in the paper. The story didn't break until that evening. Oh. Yep. Oh, Carl. So the DA assigned Francis L. Wellman as the lead prosecutor on the case. He had graduated from Harvard and worked as corporate counsel for the city of New York. He was known as a killer cross-examiner, and he wrote the well-respected book, The Art of Cross-Examination, which is still in print and used today, which I thought was pretty cool. Prior to joining the DA's office, Wellman's experience had actually not been in criminal prosecution. In fact, he'd never prosecuted any sort of criminal case. And although he had begun to gather cases under his belt, at the time he was assigned to prosecute Carl, he had only tried three homicide cases. Wellman had nine months to prepare before the trial started, but during that time, he was trying another 10 jury cases, half of which were also for murders. Wow. Which is insane to me. Fortunately, Wellman had some help in the form of Charles E. Sims Jr. Sims excelled at research and being able to turn that into an effective story to present to the jury. So unfortunately for Carl, this was a dynamite team. So the way they saw it, they had three things they needed to prove. First, that someone poisoned Helen. Second, that it was Carl who did the poisoning. And third, that Carl had a motive to kill Helen. They had abundant proof to the first point. The doctors who had attempted to save Helen's life, the coroner and deputy coroner, and any other medical professional, if given the details of the circumstance, would all testify that Helen had died of a morphine overdose. Where is May? Because she can help them make the case that it was she premeditated. Sure yep, sure can. She comes back later. Okay. Oh, Colby. You look at you. I'm, I'm laser focused. I'm going <laughs> to nail Carl She's like leaning wall. over I the hate table. Him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You will really like Wellman. He okay. is that good. They wanted to be thorough and not just rely on the opinion, however, based in fact. They wanted the science to prove it. So they wanted to show that Helen had a lethal amount of morphine in her body. In other words, they wanted an autopsy. Unlike the coroner, Wellman and Sims did not care about Mrs. Potts' social standing. Good. Despite the fact that it was now late March, so almost two months after Helen had been buried, they ordered that her body be exhumed. Amazingly, Helen's body was actually decently preserved since she had been embalmed and buried in a brick vault surrounded by dry soil. Grim fact, the doctor who performed the autopsy was the grandson of Alexander Hamilton. Oh, Alexander Hamilton. I knew it. Yep. Um, wouldn't it be hard to perform an autopsy after someone has been embalmed? Yes, but they know they like got the information or the um Did they pull the toxicology reports? They did, I have mention of it oh. later. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Hamilton's findings were as follows. There was congestion in the brain consistent with morphine poisoning. There were no lesions on the pons viroli, which is the part of the brainstem that links the medulla oblongata and the thalamus. This is a condition that could cause death with symptoms similar to those that Helen had died from. 
Her kidneys were healthy and normal, which excluded uremia, a condition that occurs when waste products associated with decreased kidney function build up in your blood and also would have produced similar symptoms. So he basically said it's consistent with morphine poisoning. Mm -hmm. It's not these two other things that would be similar. They also wanted to confirm that there was morphine in Helen's body. This required Marina's favorite toxicology report. Yes, ma'am. But as we know, this takes some time, especially back in 1891. So the DA, though, was impatient. And although he ideally should have waited for the results before arresting Carl, he indicted him on April 1st. (laughs) In the 1890s, were they drawing blood with like a bamboo straw? I don't know. Neither Um, do I. I They were doing coffee enemas. (laughs) I know that. I'm going to wish for one tomorrow morning. (laughs) All of us are going to be one one of those bad boys. That and the whiskey. I can do both of those. Oh, gosh. All right. The results from the toxicology report came back. Do you want to know what they are? I would love to know what the report says. (laughs) Yes, please. There was a small quantity of morphine and no quinine. Given the length of time between the investigation and death, it was estimated that she had taken a fatal dose of three to five grains of morphine. Remember the that Carl said the prescription was for one grain across six capsules, right. and she only had four in her possession. So now, Wellman and Sims were confident they could prove that Helen had been poisoned. To address the second point, did Carl poison her, they also needed to rule out accident or suicide. So very much like what Mr. Weston did. For suicide, they interviewed Mrs. Potts, Miss Day, again, that's the principal of the school, and her roommates. Nothing about Helen's behavior gave any indication she would have wanted to commit suicide. Further, she had no means to do so, at least in the manner of poisoning. There were no drugs in her room other than that empty pillbox. For an accident, the obvious possibility was that it was the pharmacist's mistake. But again, this was easy to disprove by testing the remaining capsule that Carl had provided. How convenient that Carl provided the Uh remaining capsule. Uh Uh-huh. Wellman and Sims felt sure it was a homicide by morphine poisoning, so now to prove that Carl was responsible. They knew logically it was his doing. Carl had gotten the correctly, non-lethally filled capsules. Carl gave them to Helen, and since one of them killed Helen, it must have had a lethal dose of morphine in it. Since Helen didn't have access to the morphine, it must have been Carl. Therefore, Carl killed Helen. But why did Carl have access to morphine, but Helen didn't? So first, morphine was available easily at pharmacies, as we said earlier, And that's clearly since Carl had gotten that prescription filled as a student. And second, morphine capsules had been passed around Dr. Peabody's lecture. Oh, that's Mm -hmm. right. As the show and tell Mm -hmm. Google history search. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So finally, as for the third and final point, the motive, Carl didn't want to publicly marry Helen, but that wasn't exactly a compelling reason. Either way, they were ready. Wellman and Sims were ready for trial. They just needed Carl to be arrested. So the police went to Mrs. Harris's home. She said he wasn't there. He was at his lawyer's office downtown. I wonder why. So they go to the office and they find a man that looked exactly like Carl. Must be him. They put him in custody and he throws a fit saying they have no reason to detain him and that they have the wrong man. Is it his brother or something? <laughs> yes. Wow. Yeah, McCready? Good McCre- my goodness. You I'm are I, listening I and learning. solved this one already, already in my head. Have. I yeah. know exactly what yes. happened. Yep. Um, and I imagine this arrest as like your classic old timey like motion picture. You know what I mean? Like silent picture mm-hmm. where he's like running away and they're grabbing him. Like Charlie know. Chaplin yeah. status. Yeah. Exactly <laughs> what I imagine. Oh, see, and I'm, I'm having like a lay Miz moment where they grab the wrong guy and he's like, two, four, six, oh, one. <laughs> he might have sung. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he's a distant relative of yours. <laughs> <laughs> but you're you're absolutely right, Colby. It was McCready, Carl's brother. So, Laura's like, I'm gonna ignore Marina. Yes, yep. Colby. Yes, let's proceed. 
I love this because they still didn't believe him until Carl turned himself in. Oh my in. gosh. Because nobody has IDs. So like they they thought it was really just Carl. Carl had gone by other names. What yeah. do they know? You know? This, Hashtag 1800s. Yeah, exactly. This poor brother. He doesn't get the girl. Yeah. He gets accidentally arrested for his brother's crimes. <laughs> He's 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 losing in the same yeah, way. It's here. a bummer. Or is he winning? <laughs> I think at the end of the day, he's definitely yeah. winning. So no worries though. By that evening, Carl's brother was free and Carl was in jail. Now, in an attempt to not rewrite the entire book that I read, I will just say that between Carl's arrest and the actual start of the trial, there were a lot of technical challenges from the defense in order to delay things, and they were successful in doing that till the end of the year. I'll now give a summary of the trial, but if you are interested in all of the details, again, go read the book. It's, it is genuinely interesting. <laughs> it's a great read. And one more time, what was the name of the book? Six Capsules, The Gilded Age Murder of Helen Potts. Okay. It's really, it seems like it would be dry because it is 1890s trial, but it is, the author is hysterical and like puts in little quips and it's just, it's a really good read. It's only like a few hundred pages too so it's not like a giant novel casual yeah now of those few hundred pages more than half of the book is dedicated to the ins and outs of the trial and there are so many details that i just didn't have time to um to share them but makes for a hell of a story anyway the trial began on thursday january 14th 1892 leading carl's defense was attorney john a taylor joining him was his assistant william travers jerome a former ada Taylor was responsible for trial strategy, opening and closing arguments, and the legal arguments. Jerome did the cross-examining and questioning of witnesses. The judge, who interestingly was referred to as a recorder at that time, hmm. was Frederick Smythe. He was an incredibly experienced and fair judge, having presided over more jury trials than any other judge in New York around that time. Jury selection took three days. Opening arguments were scheduled for January 19th. In Wellman's opening argument, he basically laid out all his cards with the plan to provide proof in the form of witnesses and evidence as the trial went on. It was eloquent, direct, and factual, and if the jury had been pulled then, they likely would have found Carl guilty. In today's legal world, the defense would have retorted with their own opening argument. However, in 1892, the defense could choose to defer their opening argument until after the prosecution rested. And this is what Taylor and Jerome did. While that's sometimes helpful... Carl's lawyers really would have been better off going right after Wellman so they could counter what he said and also help the jury understand the defense before they got into the complicated cross-examination. So if they if they did an opening after the state closed their case, mm-hmm. did they lose the right to do a closing argument? No. Then that was not smart. No, it because wasn't. Because you want to color the jury's exactly. view of the evidence. Yep. And you want to take the momentum out of, you know, take the wind out of Wellman's sails because he had this great opening argument. You want to come in and prove it all wrong. Nope. They just let the prosecution go. Okay. Yeah. I'm thinking of watching a documentary where it's all one-sided and you leave that documentary and you're like, right, that person totally did it. And then you hear another side of it and you're like, no, nope. The other person was way more convincing. Yep. That will not be the case here. Okay. (laughs) Uh, But exactly. Because then it would go, prosecution does everything. And then they do, I think the prosecution's closing arguments are still after the defense rested though. But okay. still, it you would still have ended with the defense. You just, it just they didn't make the right decision. No, yeah. it just no. feels like you'd be fighting an uphill battle exactly. because you would have gotten all the facts from one side, and now you're sort of hearing the dissenting opinion, and you're like, no, that's not true. Right, that's not true. No, nope. right. Yep. You want to color like that's why both right. sides get a chance because you're coloring, which we don't have opening arguments in Connecticut, but really, no. Oh, I didn't know. I 
you grim teach us so fact. much. That is a grim fact. I genuinely wow. So what do you do? Yeah, in Connecticut, you just start the trial. <laughs> you just go. You I just call go. my first witness. Yeah, is that is it that dramatic? Do you have closing arguments? There are closing arguments, yes, and because the state has the burden, the state argues, then yep. the defense gets to argue, and then the prosecution gets a rebuttal. Yep, because they have the burden of proof, so okay. they get the last say. Ah. But there's no opening arguments in Connecticut. Ah. There are in other states, right, obviously, right. but. Hmm. And there were in 1892 in New York. Listen, in the 1800s, anything is possible. That's why I love these stories. It's just crazy. Mm -hmm. All right. So remember that Wellman and Sims, when they were preparing for a trial, they felt like they had those three points to make Mm -hmm. that someone poisoned Helen, that it was Carl who did it, and that he had a motive to kill Helen. So to prove the poisoning, Wellman called Dr. Fowler as a witness. Dr. Fowler testified about the state he found Helen in when he arrived, what he did in an attempt to save her life, his discovery of the pillbox, and his discussions with Carl. Wellman's questioning focused in on Dr. Fowler's assessment that Helen had been suffering from a morphine overdose. Dr. Fowler said this was a combination of all her symptoms, so her skin, her you know pale, clammy skin, her slow breathing, slow pulse, but most importantly, that both pupils were symmetrically constricted. On cross, Jerome tried to undermine the prosecution by trying to get Dr. Fowler to admit this, that the symptoms that Helen showed were similar to other conditions outside of morphine poisoning. For example, that uremia, mm. epilepsy, apoplexy, or maybe Helen had just died from a regular typical dose of morphine. You don't know. Okay. Jerome also I accused... Like, I feel like you do know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's that's not what happened. But he was going with that like heart disease underlying issue thing. Mm-hmm. Jerome also accused Dr. Fowler of latching onto a diagnosis and ignoring other possibilities. Dr. Fowler addressed each point to the prosecution's benefit, so he wasn't having any of that on cross. Next, Wellman called Mrs. Potts to testify. After having apparently realized that the cat was out of the bag, Mrs. Potts no longer sought to cover for Carl. Finally. Yeah. So she talked all about Carl's poor behavior, emphasizing his botched abortions and just general lack of care for Helen. There was really not much Jerome could do on cross-examination. He tried to show through Mrs. Potts that Helen was such a lovely young lady that how could Carl kill her? But all he succeeded in doing was making the jury even angrier at the possibility that Carl had killed such a lovely young lady. Next up was Dr. Treverton, who laid out in great detail everything he knew about Carl's attempted abortion, all of the correspondence about Carl, really just not painting a great picture. He also mentioned that while he was treating Helen, he gave her small doses of morphine, disproving one of Jerome's arguments that maybe Helen had died from a normal amount of morphine. So her pre-existing condition plus the morphine could not have possibly have killed her because in his care, Mm -hmm. she received that exact same combo. Exactly. Hmm. Yep. And again, Jerome did not accomplish anything in cross with Dr. Treverton. He basically tried to make it seem like Dr. Treverton only cared about getting the money for helping Helen, but he failed. Wellman called a few more witnesses, including the chemist who had analyzed the fifth capsule and the pharmacist who had filled the prescription. The most interesting testimony to come from that is that it's difficult, if not impossible, to visually tell the difference between a capsule filled with a mixture of quinine and morphine and a capsule filled with pure morphine. How curious. Mm Mm-hmm. Jerome had little success on cross here as well. He did manage to call out that the pharmacist knew he was breaking the law by filling a prescription written by a student, but that really had no bearing on the case. So we're talking a lot about the morphine capsules, but Mm -hmm. Carl picked up two prescriptions at the pharmacy, right? There was one for these and then the six sandalwood capsules as well. Yep. 
we haven't talked about the, did that have anything to do with what's going on here or? I don't think so. Not the sandalwood itself. Definitely. That okay. was, that was innocuous, but it's a potential. He used the actual capsules maybe, or just mm-hmm. wanted extra capsules, but it doesn't actually come back up in the, um, in the trial. I wonder if maybe he was just trying to make it seem like, Oh, I'm just filling prescriptions yeah. or something. Um, I debated leaving that out in the beginning. Um, so I'm glad you asked that because I didn't want to confuse people, but, uh, I also just really wanted to say the dramatic statement that he never came back from the sin for the sandalwood. So good news, Marina, you can in <laughs> fact lick your candles and they will not kill you. So tomorrow morning, <laughs> coffee, enema and sandalwood shots. I think that that is a recipe for success. I think so too. I think you'll have the best day ever. I think so too. Report back, please. <laughs> I will. <laughs> Another interesting witness that Wellman managed to find was a man who had stayed at a hotel at the same time as Carl. He testified that he had overheard a conversation between between Carl and a lady friend, where essentially Carl told her to marry an old man for money. When she asked how they'd get his money, he said, quote, you find the old gentleman and we'll give him a pill. I can fix that. Oh, shoot, mm-hmm. Carl. Wellman also called Helen's primary doctor, who testified to Helen's general health. Specifically, she had not had any underlying heart issues. Next, an old classmate of Carl's testified that Carl said Mrs. Potts knew about Helen's heart disease and hadn't told Carl. Otherwise, he never would have given Helen the morphine, implying again that Helen died from the regular amount. These two points together helped imply that Carl had lied about the cause of Helen's death, which in turn implied that he had been the one to murder her, with the rationale being if he was lying when he said the death was accidental, then he must have known it was a homicide and he was the one who had given her the morphine. Wellman had plenty of other witnesses lined up. He had Charles Oliver. That was Dr. Treverton's nephew who Carl had told about his despicable treatment of women while Helen was delivering the stillborn child. May Schofield, uh, Carl had told her that he'd like to kill Helen and get out of the marriage. Mm-hmm. He also called two doctors who went to school with Carl and each recalled an individual conversation where Carl told them it was possible to kill someone with poison and no one would know. Again, that is the Google search yes. of the 1800s. Like, stop talking. There's no way to track your (laughs) shit if you just shut up. (laughs) Exactly. Speaking of the Google search, I'm going back to the day where the drugs were passed out in class. Mm -hmm. I think Carl pocketed some. Like, Mm -hmm. a sleight of hand, just dip into the jar, and he's got a little sample for later to do a little something-something with. Mm -hmm. It's never confirmed or denied, but I think that is exactly what happened, and that is what Wellman thinks happened as well. I am actually Wellman reincarnated. That's what's happening right now. (laughs) That's why I like Wellman so much. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Hamilton, who performed the autopsy, and the analyst who performed the toxicology report, and Dr. Peabody, who had given the lecture on morphine and also talked with Carl right after Helen's death. And then he also called a variety of witnesses whose testimony just strengthened the previous one. So overall, very strong. Jerome was unable to poke holes in any of these witnesses during cross-examination. In particular, regarding the idea that Helen had died due to morphine poisoning, the most difficult fact to refute was the symmetrical contraction of her pupils, which at the time was only known to be caused by morphine poisoning. All witnesses agreed to that fact, as well as the fact that Helen's pupils were symmetrically contracted. Carl included? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, he didn't testify, so. Oh, but yeah, okay. I think he would have. Everybody who was at Helen's bedside yep. agreed. All in all, Wellman hit it out of the park. He had strong evidence backed up by respected witnesses. And on top of that, Jerome had really failed to have any creative success in cross-examination. So let's now talk about what he did when the defense took over. 
The prosecution had taken two weeks to present their case, so on Friday, January 29th, Taylor delivered the defense's opening argument. He began by saying that they would bring in 15 witnesses and it would take another 10 days, and this was yet another blow to their case because they only presented nine witnesses over two days, so the jury assumed that the defense lost steam at giving more credit to the prosecution. Taylor alleged that the whole indictment was built on a suspicion held by Mrs. Potts and there was no evidence proving Carl had poisoned Helen. And this is like after two weeks of them hearing all of the evidence of Mm -hmm. him poisoning her. Not quite effective. Exactly. In fact, there wasn't even sufficient proof that Helen had died of morphine poisoning. Unlike Wellman, whose opening argument was essentially a summary of his case, which helped the jury see his point of view, Taylor basically said, just you wait and see. (laughs) My favorite part is when he told the jury not to be seduced by scientific possibilities, but to keep their deliberations in the plain domain of common sense. Yeah, don't let that science interfere (laughs) with your Literally what he said. Yep, yep. So the defense's first witness was Dr. Horatio Wood. He was certainly qualified. He was an educator at the University Hospital in Philadelphia and a distinguished author on the topic of poisons, among many other accomplishments. Dr. Wood testified to several points that were in direct conflict with what the prosecution's witnesses had said. He claimed it was not possible to definitively diagnose morphine poisoning from the symptoms alone. Internal organs of a body cannot be deemed healthy unless examined under a microscope which was impossible if the person had been embalmed and buried for 53 days. He also said that small doses of morphine could kill a patient suffering from uremia. He could not say for certain how Helen had died based on the known facts. Hmm. Where Jerome had failed in cross-examination, Wellman excelled. On that last point, Jerome had not asked how Dr. Wood thought Helen might have died if not from morphine poisoning, Wellman first managed to show that Dr. Wood would not state Helen had not died of morphine poisoning, and then he asked if Dr. Wood could diagnose a case of morphine poisoning from symptoms alone. When Dr. Wood said he didn't think he could do it positively, Wellman pressed. Did that mean Dr. Wood had never diagnosed anyone with morphine poisoning? Obviously knowing he had. This caused Dr. Wood to differentiate between a diagnosis and a definitive diagnosis or confirmed cause of death once all the evidence is in. So when he was responding to Jerome's questioning, Dr. Wood had been saying that he couldn't confirm the cause of death as morphine poisoning at the time, but omitting the fact that he absolutely would have diagnosed it just like Dr. Fowler did. And this was, of course, a distinction that Jerome Jerome did not want the jury to pick up on, but Wellman was happy to call attention to it. Splitting hairs at this point. Definitely. And even though this wasn't the entire point of Dr. Wood's testimony, it really did take the wind out of the defense's sails. (laughs) What did erode at the point of Dr. Wood's testimony was Wellman's ability to pull out the fact that Dr. Wood had only seen one case of morphine poisoning in the last 15 years. But perhaps the most embarrassing line of questioning in Wellman's cross-examination of Dr. Wood was when Dr. Wood claimed he had an example of a patient who had that symmetrical contraction of pupils and it wasn't morphine poisoning. Sounds damning, except that Sims, that's Wellman's partner and excellent researcher, he knew of that case. And it was, in fact, symmetrical because the patient had one eye. 
<laughs> that may be my favorite point in the whole case. That's amazing. Yep. The regular eye. <laughs> oh, it just literally one eye. Literally, one he eye. had one eye. Yeah. I was thinking. I was thinking that the real eye matched the size of the pupil on the fake eye, but it's no, just one just eye. One. Yep. Yep. And this example is actually in Wellman's book, and he estimated that he and Sims reviewed five to six thousand cases of morphine poisoning in preparation. It's aggressive. They, they did their homework. Yep. Time. Not on Google. Not <laughs> on where Google. they were reading. The encyclopedia. <laughs> That's where they were at. <laughs> okay, Ted Mosby. <laughs> So things went downhill from there for the defense. The contraction of pupils was a linchpin in the case. Everyone agreed that Helen's pupils had been contracted symmetrically and extremely at the time. There were no known causes other than morphine poisoning. Jerome tried to gain some traction with his first witness of the second day, Dr. Biggs. He was a practicing pathologist who had performed over 2,000 autopsies. Dr. Biggs attacked Dr. Hamilton's approach, saying 53 days was too long to be buried and then have a successful autopsy, and her internal organs would be too decomposed to tell anything. He also said that Helen's heart weighed far less than a normal heart, the implication being that Helen had indeed had a heart condition. Where Jerome gained traction, Wellman threw a banana peel. (laughs) I was was proud of that statement. I I think (laughs) it's great. Thank you. In preparation for his testimony, Dr. Biggs had done his own examination of Helen's organs, including her heart. During his testimony, he read from those notes to answer some of Jerome's questions. Wellman had been listening and learning, a grandfather gremlin perhaps, and he heard the following. The heart mutilated, blood-stained. It is in some part black and dried to a board-like hardness. The remaining portions being more or less decomposed. The great arteries given off from the heart are entirely wanting the walls and valves mutilated, the size of the organ apparently about normal. Gotcha. Dr. Biggs was on one hand saying Helen's heart was much too small, and yet in his own notes saying that it was normal. Much like his evisceration of Dr. Wood, Wellman had undermined the jury's confidence in Dr. Biggs. Jerome's remaining witnesses fared no better. With each, not only were Jerome's attempts to use them to poke a hole in the prosecution's case weak, but Wellman saw what he was trying to do and was happy to exploit those weaknesses on cross. On January 22nd, the defense rested. It was time for closing arguments. Taylor began for the defense. He spent 10 minutes straight speaking to Carl's character and how terrible it would be for him and his poor mother if the jury were to find him guilty. He finally moved on to the actual case, saying that the prosecution needed to prove three things, like Wellman had said in his preparation. First, that Helen was poisoned by morphine. Second, that Carl was the one who poisoned her. And finally, that it was premeditated. Although proving the first two points basically proved the last. For the first point, Taylor said that it was just Dr. Fowler's opinion that it was morphine poisoning. It wasn't fact. Dr. Fowler's opinion biased Dr. Boehner, the second doctor who helped him. Taylor then said that Dr. Hamilton's autopsy results weren't to be listened to because other expert witnesses had disagreed with the things he said, but didn't elaborate on any of those details. Then Taylor reiterated his point in opening arguments that the jury should just ignore science and use common sense. In other words, yeah, these tiny little facts suggest that Carl killed Helen, but, you know, you should just look at him and know he's innocent. Yeah, he doesn't look like a killer. He's an upstanding gentleman. Yeah. Taylor also tried to recoup Dr. Woods and Dr. Biggs' credibility, but used random facts about them to do so, like the fact that Dr. Biggs was old enough to be a U.S. senator. Oh, <laughs> so, and they're so very trustworthy, trustworthy human beings. Exactly. <laughs> Having evidently felt that this was all sufficient proof that Helen wasn't poisoned, he set out to show that Carl never would have poisoned her anyway. 
He was such a romantic and so in love with Helen. He wanted to marry her that February. Regarding that silly little threat Carl had made to May Schofield about Helen, well, he said, I would rather kill my wife and kill myself before the shell come out, but a real threat would have said, I will kill my wife. So it's just, it's just funny little comments. Same, same with the comments to his classmates. Okay. Sounds just, like splitting hairs again. Yeah, just <laughs> yeah. casual discussion that you yeah. have with a woman that you yeah. met for the first time who happens to be friends mm-hmm. with your secret wife. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and the other secret marriages and taking advantage of women, that was, that was not infidelity. Carl could still love Helen yet lust after other women. Oh. Not in the 1800s, you <laughs> No, no, sir. Mm. All in all, Taylor said, Carl was so in love with Helen that he had taken her to see his own mother to proclaim their marriage. As he made this point, Mrs. Harris, his mother, who was in the audience, screamed that was a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> and while her outburst obviously didn't blatantly prove this meant Carl wasn't in love with Helen, it stopped at any momentum that Taylor mm. had. After a few more feeble points, Taylor wrapped up by saying that Carl's own actions proved he was innocent. Why would he have handed over the extra capsule to be analyzed? Why would he have gone down to the DA to address the charges? Why would he turn himself in when he was indicted? Obviously, he was innocent. And this is ironic because Carl's very eagerness to clear his name is what got him a trial in the very first place. Mm -hmm. Wellman's only preamble for his closing argument was to compliment the defense, but he did so backhandedly. He implied that the prosecution's job was to enforce the law and stick to the facts, and the defense came up with creative stories. He called attention to the shorter case, nine witnesses versus 15, two days versus 10, and then he tackled the same questions as Taylor. Was Helen poisoned? And if so, did Carl do it? For the first point, the prosecution showed that there were no other possible causes for Helen's symptoms, pre- and post-mortem, other than morphine poisoning. He said that the defense had not generated any doubt as to that fact. Now, as to whether Carl did it, well, if he did, then they needed to have shown it was not suicide or an accident. They had disproven suicide. Helen had neither the motive nor the means. And it was not an accident. The capsule that Carl provided was analyzed, and it showed the correct mixture. And the two pharmacists testified that the capsules had been properly filled. Therefore, it had to be a homicide. Wellman believed that Carl's behavior while Helen was dying, particularly the number of times he asked if he could be found responsible for her death. (laughs) It was an accident. Was an indication of guilt, as was his lack of urgency in going to the pharmacy to see if they'd made a mistake. Carl had also told different tales as to the cause of Helen's death. He said it was a mistake by the pharmacist. He said it was a heart condition. It was a heart condition combined with morphine. Carl had also not pushed for an autopsy. If he was so worried about being found responsible, then he should have had it proven that Helen Mm -hmm. had died from another cause not attributed to him. Now, as for motive, let's start with the fact that Carl's a bad guy to begin with. A scoundrel, as as Wellman said. Mm. He had admitted to the conquests of women, even secretly marrying them, if they wouldn't give up what he wanted. As such, he never intended to publicly marry Helen. He had gotten all he wanted out of her, and he had told May Schofield about the marriage to get Helen to agree to another abortion. But Helen still had some dirt on him and he didn't see how he was going to get out of it until he attended Dr. Peabody's lecture on morphine. How fortuitous. (laughs) Wellman contended that Carl stole some of the morphine capsules out of the jar that had been passed around. He had gone to the pharmacy to fill the prescription for the quinine and morphine mixture. And he was in a rush to obtain them, even though he wasn't going to see Helen until the next day. Why? Because he had to take the capsules home, open one up and replace the mixture with pure morphine. Since only one of the four that Carl had given Helen contained enough morphine to be lethal, at least we assume so because she 
lived through the other three. Mm-hmm. It was actually a heartbreaking coincidence that Mrs. Potts had encouraged her daughter to take the pill that would kill her. Mm. It's like she was playing Russian roulette. With exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. I particularly liked one of the final points that Wellman made. He said, quote, circumstantial evidence is not like a chain where one weak link can weaken the entire chain. It is like a rope or cable. Each fact is a strand of that rope. And as we pile one circumstance on another, one fact on another, so we add strands and strength to the rope until we get a cable strong enough to bind the prisoner to justice. That's so deep. That's I know. Awesome. Oh, Can wow. you imagine this trial? I just like... I would so get intense. goosebumps yeah. if I was in that courtroom yes. when he said that. That is well, very deep. And and he definitely had the emotional attention because he ended his closing argument with a plea to the jurors' emotions. He had them imagine that they were looking at Helen's headstone and saw that it said murdered innocence. You can't do that. <laughs> really? No. Literally? Yeah. yeah, you can win an appeal for that. You can't do that. Really? Appealing to the emotions of the jurors oh. is reversible error. So he probably shouldn't have said that he wished they could call her back, but it was too late. The die is cast. No, okay. you get a new trial. Not in the 1800s. <laughs> Not in the 1800s. Interestingly, while Wellman was delivering these powerful words, Mrs. Potts was heard by court reporters to be praying for the jury to find Carl innocent. Hmm. It seems counterintuitive given that she had knowingly helped make him look guilty once on the stand. But if he was truly found guilty, that meant she had most certainly encouraged her daughter to take that final Mm -hmm. capsule. After a recess for dinner and a lengthy set of instructions from the judge, the jury began deliberations at 9.23 p.m. At 10.47 p.m., they had their verdict. The newspaper later reported that prior to bringing their verdict to the judge, in the first vote, eight found Carl guilty of first-degree murder, three found him guilty of second-degree murder, and one abstained. In the second vote, 11 found him guilty of first-degree murder, and one found him not guilty. And finally, all 12 members of the jury found Carl Harris guilty of murder in the first degree. Mrs. Harris screamed and subsequently collapsed. (laughs) Hashtag 1800s. On February 8th, 1892, a year to the day when Carl said he would marry Helen publicly, and two years since they had been married in secret, Judge Smythe sentenced Carl to death. He was brought to Sing Sing Correctional Facility just north of New York City. Oh, I love this for Carl. I mm-hmm. love this. Was it death by firing squad? <laughs> no. Damn. No. <laughs> While Carl sat on death row, the newspapers continued to run stories about the case. And despite his transgressions, Carl had quite the following. Inside and out of prison. Women were taken by his looks and the guards were charmed by his intelligence and mm. charisma. Classic. While Carl awaited his execution, his legal team, now led by a different lawyer, William F. Howe, submitted his case to the Court of Appeals. Can you say that again? That was, that was loud. It's not it's loud. You don't usually it, hear him. You do hear some, that. Some you that can hear. Loud. I think that one was loud enough yes. that it'll come through. Yep. While Carl awaited his execution, his legal team, now led by William F. Howe, submitted his case to the Court of Appeals. They were quickly denied. But another beacon of hope came through. Someone named Carl Peterson emerged saying he had known Helen and accused her of being a morphine addict. Hmm. Howe jumped on this and submitted a motion to Judge Smythe requesting a retrial. This too was denied. Yet again, Carl had screwed himself over. For the retrial, he had provided an affidavit about his relationship with Helen. Judge Smythe said this was the best piece of evidence he could get to prove that Helen wasn't addicted to morphine. Carl was a medical student and was in an intimate relationship with Helen. Shouldn't he have known if she was addicted to morphine? Mm -hmm. Howe persevered. The only other way they could possibly save Carl was to have him pardoned by the governor, a man named Roswell P. Flower, which is such a great name. 
That is a great name. Governor Flower delegated the assessment to Senator George Raines, who would serve as commissioner over what was essentially an informal trial. I could write yet another episode on how this part of the story transpired, but I'll just tell you that Howe and Wellman presented evidence and witnesses to Commissioner Raines, who concluded that there could be no other logical outcome except to let the sentence of the court stand. Carl proclaimed his innocence to the end. In a speech following Judge Smythe's denial of a retrial, Carl said he wanted his headstone to read, we would not if we had known, attributed to the jury. In other words, they wouldn't have killed him if they had known the truth. <laughs> I think that could be uh, her mom's MO for the rest of her life as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's sad. Mm-hmm. So true. Yep. That, was, that was grim. Very grim. As is this. On Thursday, May 4th, Governor Flower sent a telegram to Carl informing him of his decision. The warden at Sing Sing, who had been delaying the execution until the completion of the investigation, began his preparations. Carl was executed by electric chair on Monday, May 8th, 1893. And indeed, on a silver plate on Carl's casket, the inscription read, Carlisle W. Harris, murdered May 8th, 1893, aged 23 years, 7 months, 15 days. We would not if we had known. The jury. That's dramatic. Wow, he was only 23? I was that's why i kept that whole thing in there because i think you forget i in my mind he's middle-aged yeah. mm-hmm. i guess he was for the 1800s but um <laughs> yeah only 23 and helen was so so young we don't again that's actually a point i wanted to make in closing is there is so little from helen's point of view on yeah. this and that's why i did the intro the way i did because it was striking to me that even in the super detailed book with all these transcripts from court at which she obviously wouldn't have been at court, but um, there's just no voice from Helen. Mm-hmm. And it just was so representative of the second class nature yeah. of women at that time. Because well, her family didn't give her a voice. Her mom nope. tried to just yeah. sweep it under the rug. Right. Exactly. It's so sad. So I think the defense failed my, my opinion on the whole matter. Obviously, I think Carl did it. I think he's right. very, very guilty. But the defense, I think, put too much focus on trying to prove that Helen had not been poisoned at all. But if she had been poisoned, it would have been from these capsules. By not showing how anyone but Carl handled or gave her the capsules, and Carl himself ruined the possibility of blaming the pharmacist, they basically backed themselves into a corner that if it was proven that Helen was poisoned, which it was, then it must have been Carl and he must have had a motive. So, um, yeah, I I basically agree with everything that Wellman said. I think I love how I, I wish I could have sat in that room I would, probably wouldn't have understood anything, but um, it must have been it must have been the trial of the century, as they said. So, there's your history lesson in an 1800s wild ride of uh, the murder of Helen Potts. It was grim. It, it was, was very grim. grim. Yeah, I'm still upset with her family, like a lot upset. <laughs> Me too. Me too. And I think like I'm. I wonder if Mrs. Potts. I know this was just the times for her to keep it. Um, under wraps and not even tell her husband. But I wonder what would have happened if Mr. Potts had yeah. been involved because he seems he would have killed Carl. That's probably. what I really mm. think. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it just it's just amazing how it transpired and none of that. It I love the part that none of it would have happened if Carl just kept his mouth shut and went about his day. Um, although he would have been ultimately had he would have had to deal with the arrest from the Neptune Club. But still, that yep, I think he would have been fine, not dead. But that is that is the story. So you know the drill by now. I'm going to tell you all the ways you can virtually hang with us. First are the old standards. Follow us on Instagram at Grim Crime Podcast and Facebook Grim A True Crime Podcast to see case photos and other fun things. 
You can always email us to say hi or make case suggestions at grimcrimepodcast at gmail.com. But our favorite way to talk with our gremlins is our Discord server, which we talked about last time. And you can access that through Patreon. I think we've talked about what Patreon is a couple times, but I'll just remind you that it's an optional way to contribute to our show. It helps us maintain and improve our equipment, work to set up a merchandise store, and most importantly, replenish our wine supply. But you do get something out of it in addition to our regular shows. We currently have three tiers of patronage. The $2 a month level, which makes you a grand gremlin, gets you a shout out and our profession of love at the beginning of our regular episodes. The $3 a month level or grand gremlin gets you the shout out plus access to our bonus episodes, p bonies. You can listen to those episodes right on the Patreon app or website, and we are promising at least one bonus episode a month. Finally, if you go for the grimmest gremlin level at $5 a month, you get everything. And like I just mentioned, you also get access to that Discord server. Marina will also sing you a song. I'm adding yeah. that. I'm adding that benefit. <laughs> Let's, you know what? We could do a Facebook live karaoke night. Oh, that would be so much fun. We could totally do that. Uh-huh. We could. I'll, sing, I'll sing your song. <laughs> Laura's like, no, thank you. No, I'll watch. I'm going gonna, gonna to pick specific songs for me to sing because there's like what I call dead notes for oh, my yeah. voice. And okay. it's when I try to make a sound and nothing comes out because that note is deceased for okay. my voice. It's, Mike it, and I used to tear it up in front of a campfire. So. That's true. We could have him play the guitar. We could. That I would be into. I can rap. I have pretty good flow. <laughs> okay. So I could do that. I'll cover the Lizzo songs. Okay. Oh. And right. Nicki Minaj. I got you guys. Okay. 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 If this piques your interest, <laughs> you can go to the Patreon app or website and search Grim, a true crime podcast. As a reminder, we're streaming on just about every platform. If there are other places where you prefer to listen to podcasts and we're not there, let us know. And wherever you do listen, please rate us or even better, leave a written review. And thank you so much to those who already have. It really warms our cold black hearts to see <laughs> your reviews reflect what we intend this show to be, which, as I think we said last time, it's to feel like you're hanging out with us and talking about murders and mysteries. So we hope we make you laugh, but that we don't go too far off track. And we always aim to respect the victims and do as much research as possible to bring you the facts. So thanks for being here. And remember, listen, learn, and stay alive until next time, because the future is grim.